everybody. Welcome back to Hints and Guesses, my podcast. I'm Kent Dobson. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing. Thanks for supporting the podcast. Thanks to my Patreon supporters. Really, really appreciate it. Happy November. It's uh, finally turning cold here in Michigan, and I'm behind with my wood chopping. It's sort of, I might as well just readjust my thinking and just say, this is when I actually chop wood, instead of always feeling behind. Uh, anyway, yeah, it's been kind of a crazy month. I've had family in town, and um, tomorrow I leave for Arizona for the fourth session of the year-long program at Animus Valley Institute. The year-long program is, I think, one of the best programs that Animus offers. I did it a number of years ago, and, um, and, and I'm apprenticing on this particular one. So it'll be nice to be in the high desert of Arizona. Looking forward to that. And um, yeah, so I also earlier, very end of October led my own intensive, which I called Exploring the Sacred Masculine. And and it was a really, I think, rich and rewarding experience for me, I hope for everybody else. And also just a, it confirmed a, a sort of suspicion I had or intuition even that it's important to turn our attention to the masculine and, and in turn the feminine and to begin a different kind of conversation around masculine and feminine. And, and that's what I kind of want to explore today on the podcast, sort of uh, um, what do we mean by masculine? What do we mean by feminine? What is the sacred masculine and the sacred feminine? And I think we have a real opportunity right now in the 21st century to turn our attention to these things. And it's kind of tricky terrain. You know, it's kind of terrain that you can get canceled almost no matter what you say. Not that I'm that worried about being canceled. I just mean it's tricky terrain. And and what is the relationship between masculine, feminine, and gender? And um, and in an age where so much is being questioned around gender and sexual orientation and identity and, uh, and of course, societal roles in general and expectations, and it's an age of opportunity, it's an age of confusion, um, yeah, and which just, I don't know, says to me, okay, let's turn our attention toward, toward these things. And, and I guess one reason why I want to roam in this terrain is, like, what's my purpose here? Well, hopefully to give you some language and some ideas and some images for approaching the masculine and feminine that maybe, maybe you haven't thought about before, or at least a, a new way of holding it, a new kind of a container or two here. And maybe more importantly, just an invitation to, to wonder whether or not masculine and feminine in their wild uniqueness is sacred. And when I say sacred, I mean in, in, in the old-fashioned religious sense, as set apart, as holy, as infused with the divine, and, and therefore not something to be derided or or shamed or excluded or ignored or mocked but rather elevated in the way we used to honor the gods and goddesses of the ancient world and and something of the the goddess and the god of the masculine and feminine dwells within and and it's it in other words i'm inviting a certain kind of posture and i wanted to say that at the beginning because there's lots to be upset about in our world around masculine things and, and around feminine things and, and around, you know, fancy words like uh, patriarchy and matriarchy and, and men in particular have, have had more power than women in general. Not in every part of the world, but for most of what we would call... Um, uh, the development of the Western world, you could say. And so um, there's a lot of anger and a lot of resentment and a lot of bitterness underneath the surface. And, and it's a tough time to, to, to be growing up in this world. That's what I would say. And one of the things I learned on this retreat is it's a tough time to be a man. And, and I also feel that 
too. And, and part of what makes it tough, I know that it sounds like, you know, how dare you? It's a tough time to be a man. Try being a, you know, a woman or, or someone from a marginalized community. Okay, fine. But what I mean is it's hard to know what is to be honored, what is to be valued. Uh, how do we mature is probably the best question. I mean, you can, um, it's very easy to cast stones and it's very easy to hold a kind of um, passive shame around one's own masculinity or femininity for that matter. And, um, and therefore it makes it much more challenging to ask, well, how do I grow up out of this or through this or within this matrix or paradigm? So, um, yeah, I guess I'm just sort of riffing a little bit on why I think the conversation is important. And I'm not coming to you as an expert. This is a podcast called Hints and Guesses. And I hope it will always be that. And that what's what I try to say here is encouraging and evocative and sometimes challenging and but just one voice in 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 the conversation in the great conversation in the ancient conversations in the conversations that that matter around meaning and depth and truth and beauty and goodness and life and death and masculine and feminine so um, okay, let me just start off by making some claims here, which aren't that radical, really, but I want you to know where I'm coming from, because I think there's so much in the age of confusion around these things. There's so much misunderstanding, and, and so infrequently do we say what we mean by things. So when I say masculine and feminine, I mean masculine and feminine as archetypal realities, as energetic patterns. And I'll say more about what's an archetype, because that's a fair question. What is an archetype? Okay. <laughs> it's, you know, if I don't define that, I really haven't said that much. So give me a second on that. But archetypal energies, archetypal patterns, they're ways of describing what's real internally and externally. They're ways, mythopoetic ways of describing nature, you could even say or reality with a capital R. And in addition, all human beings, regardless of gender, possess and carry these masculine and feminine archetypal qualities to greater or lesser degrees, you could say. And in fact, there is a dance between one's own inner masculine and inner feminine you know, sometimes uh, referred to as the sacred marriage. This was the, or hieros gamos, that was a, a word that Jung popularized. And it had to do with the, the, the sacred union of the gods like Zeus and Hera or, or um, God and the church or Christ and the church and, and also masculine and feminine. And uh, that there was something about the, the coming together of the poles that was beautiful and sacred and lovely and important and pointed to a kind of, of, of wholeness that the individual parts um, could only achieve in union, something like that. The individual uh, dimensions of masculine and feminine, when brought together, achieved a kind of divine wholeness. And that's the hieros gamos, the sacred marriage. That's why all cultures, even if they had different rules, treated marriage or some version of marriage, I may not have called it that, as something sacred, that's something that, that reflects the divine in a way. So what's my point? Masculine and feminine are archetypal realities. They're that the psyche contains both. Maybe you're familiar with the terms anima and animus. That's one way of talking about it. That's the, again, Jungian terms for the counter-sexual dimension of the psyche or of the person. This is not always true, but often as a man, it's the anima, it's the, it's the feminine um, constellation of energies that lives in, in his psyche that he's coming in contact 
with and desirous of and related to. And of course, that's gets projected on the external world and, and onto other women. And, and, um, and same goes with the, an, with, with the animus, the counter-sexual dimension of, of, of the feminine and, uh, and oftentimes in, in dreams and in uh, literature, there's a kind of idealized constellation of the anima or the animus, and, and you possess that. We all possess that, and, and we come to know more of, of who we are. Really, for Jung, it acts as a kind of guide to the depths, to the soul, to the self with a capital S, to the deep realms, to follow the desirous attraction of the animus or the anima, internally, externally, blurring the lines here. Okay, so that might be, you know, I'm, I'm not going to spend a ton of time there, but let me just reiterate Everyone has both masculine and feminine qualities. And, and it means they possess a kind of wholeness, a kind of hieros gamos, a kind of sacred marriage. And, and the more those two poles meet, not that they're perfectly imbalanced, that I have a question about. I was wondering about this yesterday. I was talking to my wife about this, and, you know, I'm, I'm not really paraphrasing what she says. I'm, I would I'd have to let her speak on that, but we were just kind of wondering, is it always about balance, like a perfect balance between masculine and feminine or, or you know, any other pole for that matter? I don't know. Um, maybe not, but clearly you need some contact with the opposite pole, some relationship, and some part of that relationship uh, helps helps us uh, experience more wholeness. That's maybe the way I would put it. And so I'm not talking about perfect balance, but, but the yin and the yang, for example, is, is an image of what I'm describing. Of course, that is a more balanced image, but it's, that, that exists as a kind of potential. And the other thing I want to say, so, so that I'm as clear as possible here at the beginning, is that not only does the psyche contain both, one's given gender does not necessarily correspond to um, a deep rootedness in a particular masculine or feminine archetypal posture. It's kind of a convoluted way, it's hard to get that sentence out, of saying you can be a man and have a more feminine disposition, period. It doesn't mean you have no contact with the masculine. In fact, you do. And that probably needs some attention and some cultivation. And, um, and we could say the same about you can be a woman and have a more masculine disposition. And this is just the way the wildness of evolution and life itself, the diversity of, of human experience is just what is, what's real, what's, what's actually the case. And, and that, at least in my view, is to be celebrated. So that, in other words, masculine and feminine are not, is not the same thing as gender. But, here's the caveat, but they can't be totally separated either. I think we have to have a, a more sophisticated uh, and nuanced uh, conversation around these things. They're not the, masculine and feminine are not the same thing. They're archetypal energies. Not the same thing as gender, but... Gender is in conversation with these archetypal realities, and that's the way it is. And um, and I think the the you know I don't really want to weigh into the sort of transgender conversation right now. At least I, mean, I guess I, now I am. I don't want to weigh into it too heavily, not because I'm you know particularly skittish of the conversation, um, but because that would you know it's like. That's where all the political energy, at least some of the political energy, is going right now into these kind of culture wars. But I, I do want to say I don't like either extreme on the right or the, the left here. The right seems to say, hey, there's nothing to see here. There's no such thing, in other words, as transgender. And, of course, that's not true. And um, uh, transgender people have been part of every culture on on the planet since as far back as we can remember and as far back as we know, and um, whether you call it um, gender dysphoria or, or something else, this is just part, again, of the diversity of, of 
and complexity of just being human. And um, that does not explain, though, the the way in which, particularly the younger generations, are are uh, playing with uh, gender pronouns and and questioning. Um, the reality of, of gender at all, and which is on the far left, that gender is, is just social const is a linguistic social construct, and and I think that I reject that as well as much as I reject on the right. It's not just a linguistic social construct that you get to infuse whatever kind of personal meaning you want onto it. That there's a kind of like there's the potential for a deep-seated and blind narcissism there. Reality is exactly what I say it is whenever whenever I say it, and no one is allowed to question that. I think, no, nah, that's not true. That's too far. And, and anyway, um, one of the things I learned at Hebrew University when I was a, a student there, I took a class on religion and poverty, and, and um, it was a, really a, a sociology class, and, but we were studying how various religions and, and theologies um, and expressions of of um, religious communities, how they treated the poor, how they defined the poor, and anyway, I don't want to get into the, the premise of the whole class, but one of the things I thought was really interesting that my professors, I had two professors for this class, it was an experimental class, and, and um, one of the things they argued for, which was kind of a surprising argument, is that when religious communities like monks and nuns of various um, traditions, by the way, started referring to themselves as poor, it shifted the attention away from what they called the actual poor. <laughs> they, they spiritualized it in a way. So to give to the monastic community, the poor, was to fulfill your religious duty, thus disenfranchising the actual poor. That was the, the argument. And this argument, I think, is kind of powerful and interesting and, and might apply to a number of things. And that's something I'm beginning to wonder about with the transgender community. Because um, if anyone, for any reason, can lay claim to this, claim to be um, you know, able to switch their gender pronouns just as a kind of experimentation, how does that affect those who, who actually... Are, are in a kind of wrestling match with their own gender. In other words, the sort of um, social phenomenon, which you could wonder is a kind of, you would, I think it's worth wondering it, whether or not it's a kind of social contagion, uh, disenfranchises those who are actually part of the transgender community. That's one of the fears I, I have and wonderings I have, and that's not good, at least in my view. And I have a friend who's a high school teacher, and, and he, he has to write down um, pretty much every day, students um, newly identifying pronouns, which which can change from day to day. And if you don't go along with it, you'll be, you know, you can lose your job over this kind of stuff. And that's partly what I mean about the the social contagion and experimentation. Now, young people always do this; they push against borders and boundaries, and that's just part of adolescence. But what does it do to? Um, to actual transgender kids. That's, that's I think, uh, a troubling question. So anyway, I said I wasn't going to weigh into it, but now I have, I think, um, s some things worth thinking about. So, um, okay, back to my premise, that masculine and feminine are archetypal realities. And, and one way of thinking about archetypes, it, now I'm going to define what I mean by this, is potentials. Potentials, like... Um, like, let's take an archetype like king or queen. You can't get to the bottom of it, first of all, but there's a kind of pattern, an energetic pattern or potential that rests in the image itself. And that's what I want to say is at least what I mean by sacred masculine and sacred feminine, it, it, a, a, a kind of potential energies that that lie often latent in the psyche or might we have some as, uh, relationship to it. And by archetype, archetypal potential, I mean something that transcends the individual person. You're not the only one with masculine energies or feminine energies. These are stretched out over vast um, expanses of time here. 
And, and so to say, I, we have an opportunity to cultivate and honor and respect and work with the sacred masculine is a way of saying, working with our, our potentials. And now, um, here's another way of thinking about archetypes. So archetypes, first of all, the image comes from um, stamping coins. Like in the, in the ancient world, they had a mold. Well, they still have this, I guess. And they pour the precious metals into the mold and, and then stamp the, the metal. And then out comes a coin, which in the, in the old world leaked out sideways a little bit. So all the coins were slightly unique, but it had an image or an impression on it. Now, the image itself is not the archetype. Like, for example, if I said, hey, let's all make a coin that honors the queen, all right? Well, we would all come up with different images depending on where we lived in the world and our own histories and ideas and, and biases even. And so the stamping, the, the image on the coin, that's culturally relevant. But what is it that, what power wants to gather that in some way in a mold? And the mold is more of the archetype, the, the tendency for um, to bring the energies together into a kind of image. What is that power that wants to collect or bring into the mold, so to speak? That's the archetypal energy. So the archetype is the mold. The individual image is kind of culturally relevant, you could say. And that's true of when you think about the great stories and myths and legends, like here are some archetypes, king and queen and warrior and huntress and um, crone and shaman and medicine man, medicine woman. and Well, the pattern is the king, the queen, the medicine woman, the medicine man, but they're going to look different in different cultures. But if we stretch that out over, you know, over time, you get something of a pattern. So kings, no matter what, they're going to have, they're going to act or be a certain way in the world. And I would like to say something like that also exists with masculine and feminine. They're archetypal, they're patterns. The energy is, it constellates around certain ways of being. And that's important to be in conversation with. That's why we need myths and stories and literature and art and poetry and, and dance and um, any kind of artistic expression around masculine and feminine because it helps us dance with those transpersonal energies, those transpersonal realities. Okay, so what am I talking about? What kind of energies are we actually talking about? Like, what is masculine energy? Well, here are some ways of putting it. Um, first of all, the, the, um, a friend of mine sent me an article by a guy named Charles Eisenstein. He's a blogger, and, and he says something interesting about masculine and feminine recently, he said, one way to think about the masculine is the masculine is interested in how and the feminine is interested in what. I thought that's okay. That's kind of a simple and maybe important starting place. So the masculine interested in how, like even if you think about how things work, the how, um, how might we do this? So it has kind of the orientation is toward aim and toward action um, toward a kind of forward motion or an outward motion. The masculine is more interested in logos, you know, reason or logic, you could say, and um, the ordering of things, the naming of things. By the way, I'm, again, just a reminder, I'm not saying men, I'm saying masculine energies are interested in this and, and they live in the psyche and you have maybe more or less access to them. So logos or Roma, Roma is about law, and and that's that's um, you know just a brief description of the archetypal realm of the masculine. And so, what about the feminine? The feminine is more interested in the what. So the masculine might say how, and the feminine might say, well, what for? What for? What's the purpose here? Yes, but but we can do this. Yeah, but why can? Why should we be doing this? And in a sense, the feminine is, is more open to the relational um, dynamics of anything at all. And maybe it's more interested in meaning than just the how of something. And, and it tends to be 
more um, the posture instead of sort of forward aim oriented is receptivity, receiving or including. You know, if you if you have ever been to the Vatican and stood in the plaza, you have these columns that reach out into the plaza, and those are supposed to be the arms of the loving mother, really, the mother church, and that's that receptivity and collecting of things, and that's the feminine orientation or disposition or archetype. It tends to be more interested in eros rather than logos. And eros, you know, logos wants order and boundaries and lines and clarity. And eros wants fluidity and motion and movement and limitlessness. And, uh, you know, it's the kind of chaos and order dance. It's the yin and the yang here at work. And, okay, so that's that's... Mostly, I mean, that's like a 101 McDonald's drive through version of, of the archetype of masculine and feminine. But you can begin to wonder, and I think this is a worthwhile question, how am I oriented in the world? Do I have more masculine qualities? Do I have more feminine qualities? What's my kind of primary stance? Where are sort of my blind spots? What am I attracted to? If I have a more feminine disposition, it might be the case that I'm more attracted to masculine energies that in that kind of um, attraction, repulsion, <laughs> uh, thin line, you know. And, and if I have more masculine, uh, if that's more my, my natural outlook on the world, my natural way of being, I might be more attracted to the feminine qualities because of the, the dance of these poles. And... And there's something to be said about the tension here of opposites. So one of the things that I would like to say, maybe as clearly as I can, is that we don't need a flattening out of the masculine and feminine. We don't need people coming along, in my opinion, and saying, those are meaningless, artificial, social constructs bent on power and oppression, and they should be eliminated, and there's no such thing as masculine. There's no such thing as feminine, or to... to, to, to take it into the realm of gender. There's no such thing as male. There's no such thing as female. I think that is not helpful. In fact, what we need is more understanding about the differences here, about the poles, about the dance. We need an elevation of the masculine and the energies and the qualities and the archetypes. And we need, we need an honoring and, and of the feminine and, and, and her sacred qualities and, and energies. And we need, we need the differences to be just that because it's in the resonance in between. That's where all the action happens. That's where all the fun happens. That's where all the interest happens. You could even say that's where the potential for transformation and change happens when these two poles are pushing against one another. That's true in a relationship, but that's also true in the psyche. It's true when, we, when we're in the dance of our own opposites, which, which live within. and Okay, so uh, maybe just a bit more on archetype so you don't get the wrong idea here. Archetype doesn't necessarily mean good, like masculine equals good, or king equals good, or queen equals good. It's far more complex than that because they're potentials. And what, you, what, what could be said, well, I could say it in a couple different ways. The masculine can be immature. There's, there's perhaps even an immature archetypal pattern an immature adolescent archetypal pattern. You could put it in, in the realm of shadow too. You could say there's a shadow to the archetype of masculine. It has a dark side, just as there's a shadow to the archetype of the feminine. So we can't be naive here. We don't say, oh, it's all sacred masculine and feminine and just off with the chains of so society and I'm just going to dance with the divine feminine and masculine and and it's all going to be bliss and one and union. No, in fact, it requires at least some uh, humility and conscious attention to the shadow side, as much as the shadow can be conscious. Or as much as one can be conscious of the shadow is probably a better way of saying it. We need to be careful with these energies, is what I'm saying. I'll give you just really concrete examples of what I mean. The king archetype, and you could go ahead and fill in the blank. What, what comes to mind positively when I say king? 
when you think of king, positively. Or you can say the same with queen, too, if, if, if you'd prefer that. What is a good king like? To whom, whom does he serve, you know? What does he serve? And um, is the king self-serving or sacrificial? You know, and you're already starting to play with, with the potentials here. And, and what's the dark side of the king? What if things go sideways? What if the king is immature? And one of the books I used, by the way, in my um, intensive is a book called King, Warrior, Prophet, King, no, King, Warrior, Magician, Lover. King, Warrior, Magician, Lover. I, I don't have the book in front of me. I can't remember the author's name, two authors. Uh, it's it's, um, it's a, a book about masculine archetypes. And one of the things they said about the king is they, they said the king has a bipolar shadow side. And the bipolar shadow is the tyrant and the weakling. So in an underdeveloped um, psyche that, or uh, when the archetype is underdeveloped, it tends to come out as a tyrant or as a weakling. In other words, the grabbing for power or the running from it. So much so that you're, you become a kind of uh, weakling. Anyway, those, that, those, that's the shadow side of the, of the king archetype. And you could say that's true of all of the archetypes. And it's true of the masculine and feminine. There's a dark side here. You don't think there's a dark side to the feminine? You know, you don't think there's a dark side to the great mother? The great mother can be devouring. This is what Freud called the devouring mother. It's like the mother is so nurturing that she tends to eat everything in her presence, including her own children. Now that's the dark devouring mother. That's the helicopter mother. That's the helicopter parent that's invading, invading, invading. I want to play what you guys are playing. I want to wear what you guys are wearing. You can't leave the house. You must stay home. This kind of, um, that's the shadow side. That's the immature expression of, of something more beautiful, which is the great mother or uh, something like that. So anyway, um, what's my point? My point is our own psyches contain both the light and the dark side of these archetypes, both the golden and the sinister here. And so as much as I, you know, I'm trying in my own way to support the conversation between sacred masculine and sacred feminine, I'm not naive about these things. I'm trying not to be naive about these things. And, and that's particularly true around working with men and the masculine. This is a new thing for me, by the way. Just last year was my very first kind of men's only program. I did a course on Iron John and, and like an, um, an online, um, nine sort of nine month course on it. And this, like I said, a couple, a uh, couple weeks ago, I did my first men's only, uh, sacred masculine, uh, program. And, and if you would have asked me 10 years ago, would you be into this kind of work? I'd say, no, we don't need men's work. You know, what is that? I, I would have sort of mocked it. There was, an, there was an evangelical book going around like 20 years ago about masculine stuff. And, and in some ways it was a kind of correction of, of certain images of even Jesus, of, of Christ as sort of like a, a bathrobe wearing friendly, you know, um, passive male who liked to frolic with lambs and, you know, play with children and, you know, <laughs> this kind of like sweet, nice Jesus. And the, I think the book was a reaction to that, but I c didn't go in for it at all. It's like, this book is stupid and, and sort of fought against it in a way, which now that I know a little bit about speaking of shadow, probably there was something I needed to look at here and I wasn't ready for one reason or another. But anyway, I've come in to quote men's work in a roundabout and very reluctant way. And, um, but now I think, nope, it's needed. It's, it's here. And doesn't mean, you know, only men at certain retreats or programs. I just mean turning attention to it. All right, let's talk about the masculine. What do we mean? What's your own relationship with masculinity and with femininity and um, what are your immature um, ideas and fantasies about these about these realities and and how can you come into a deeper, more honest, and hopefully more life-giving relationship with these qualities? These are questions that I'm you know trying to ask and hold. So um, 
Okay, where do I want to go from here? Uh, okay, and, and maybe I just want to mention uh, two myths and really just very quick references to two myths. And, um, and that's the myth of the Fisher King and the Handless Maiden. And if you want some references here, some, some resources, Robert Johnson has a book called, uh, I think it's called The Fisher King and the Handless Maiden. And I think beautifully, he brings these two myths into the same book so as to start the conversation around sacred masculine, sacred feminine, our own masculine and feminine qualities. And I think importantly, what is the nature of the masculine journey? What is the nature of the feminine journey? How are they the same? How are they different? What are the nuances? Um, anyway, so that's maybe a resource, but okay, here's, here is the myth. And this is why myth is important. Myth is important because it gives us a series of images and, um, and a kind of storyline to, to which in which tugs on our own archetypal potentials, like it tugs on it, says, Hey, 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 or taps you on the shoulder and says, Hey, um, would you like to grow up? Here's what it's like. And here are the dangers and pitfalls. And here are, here are stories of people who don't grow up very well. And here are stories of people who do grow up well or well enough you know again i'm not none of what i'm talking about is about perfection all right it's just about maturing okay so the fisher king is um is the name one of the names for the the parsifal myth the the search for the holy grail you know <laughs> which if you're my age you can't help thinking of monty python you know, the one reason why Monty Python is a classic is because it's dealing with classic things. Not, not only is it like ridiculous and funny, but it's going to be a classic because it's, you know, playing in these archetypal waters. That's why, you know, Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings are, um, besides the Bible, the two most bought and read and influential books on the planet because they're just pure archetype, just... And all those potentialities rest deep, deep in the personal psyche and in the collective psyche. So it's like, no wonder Harry Potter is now a billion dollar industry and you can go to Disneyland and ride on Harry Potter rides. It's, because, it's like easy. Not, I'm not saying I can't write. I, it's not easy to write. Um, but the, the kind of universal appeal is because it's dealing with archetypes. So anyway, so the Fisher King is the story, is the story of Parsifal. And Parsifal... Um, grows up in a home without a father, which is interesting in and of itself. And it's, it's begging the question, where's the masculine here? And what happens when, when we only learn about the mas masculine from the feminine? What happens in that kind of home or household or culture even? And, and it turns out, Parsifal didn't know this, but his father was a knight, a kind of warrior, and was, was killed. And one day he's out sort of just being a kid wandering around and he sees some knights on a nearby hillside and something in him wakes up and something in him says this, this is what I've been looking for and I didn't know I was looking for it. And he goes back home and tells his mother, I'm going to go out, I'm going to find the knights, I'm going to become a knight. And she, of course, tries to talk him out of it. This is partly what the mother role does it says no don't leave home um don't leave me um and they sort of get into a fight but eventually she concedes and says okay you can go out into the world but don't ask too many questions and wear this underwear that i made you <laughs> wear this undergarment this underwear that i made you so off into the world parcival goes reminding of his of the advice here um, you could even say of the feminine and remember you can it's important to 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 keep reminding yourself we're talking about these internal energies as much as external uh, potential energies and voices but don't ask too many questions and wear this underwear it will you know it'll keep you safe under my protection type of thing and so almost right away, he bumps into the Fisher King. And the Fisher King is a wounded king, and he's a festering wound in the thigh. And that'll tell you something about the nature of the masculine right now. It's wounded in its most, most powerful and vulnerable place, you know, in the, quote, thigh, in the inner thigh. 
It's a euphemism. And, and, um, and the only uh, alleviation he, he gets, the Fisher King, from the pain is fishing, you know, and Jungian depth psychology and often interprets water as, uh, as an image of the unconscious. And I think that's a fair enough interpretation. It's not perhaps all the case, uh, always the case in dreams or stories, but he's kind of fishing in the unconscious and it gives him a slight relief, but not very much. And the, the wound is not healed. And, and so he invites, invites Parsifal into the castle and, and has a great feast. And it's kind of amazing and marvelous. And, and at one point, the Holy Grail is brought out and, and Parsifal gets a glimpse of it. And the idea is if, if the king could, could just drink from the goblet, or Parsifal drink from the goblet, or the people drink from the goblet, the sacred, the holy, the divine, it would heal the kingdom and, and heal the festering wound of the king. But no one has yet learned to ask the right question. And remember the advice to Parsifal, don't ask any questions. And so Parsifal doesn't. He does not ask the right kind of question. And um, and he gets kicked out of the castle. And, and really, the adventure begins at this point. And like all adventures... Uh, it's a winding, twisting road, sometimes of dead ends. It's a labyrinth. And, and, and meanwhile, he's trying to grow up. He meets his, his kind of muse, an anima figure, the white flower, who, who gives him energy sort of for the journey, but it's an unconsummated love longing. And so it tells you something about the desire and the way the masculine and feminine work. And, and it's unconsummated, and, and, and it pulls his longing deeper into the world, and he goes on all these adventures, and that's part of the Parsifal um, myth. Now, the story kind, kind of ends with uh, the possibility of returning to the castle, and it's at this point that Parsifal has finally learned the right question. In other words, he's taken off the underwear, he's grown up, and now he has the opportunity to ask the question that could heal the king in the kingdom, the inner king, we could say, to, be, to come into the fullness. It's like, is it Aragon in Lord of the Rings, who's a king but hasn't yet really, he hasn't lived into that potential? That's, that's the Parsifal myth. He's, he's learning, but he's not quite ready to ask the question of his own kingship. But the story leaves us there. But I want to give you the question, and the question is, whom does the grail serve? That is a question of service and self-sacrifice. That in order for the king, in order for us, you and I, male or female, okay, to grow into the possibility of our own kingship, queenship, that type of, um, that sort of stance in the world, we can't do so unless we learn to turn our attention toward what, what serves whom does the grail serve? If the grail just serves the narcissistic, egoic, small self who wants to live forever, um, then the wound will just keep festering. There will be no healing. You won't experience the wound gift mystery, that the place where you are most wounded is the place where you can be most giving from and your ultimate gift to the world. You can't learn that dance until you learn to fall on your knees or to use T.S. Eliot line, T.S. Eliot's line, to kneel where prayer has been valid. The king must kneel. This is why in Mesopotamia, they took the king out once a year and stripped him naked and mocked him and then dressed him back up. You know, it's that kind of humiliation and humanness. This is in the Christ story too. Let's, let's dress up the peasant as a king and mock here. It's like experiencing the utter poverty of our own humanness, which is also to give us a taste of the majesty of who we are. So that's, the, that's a taste of the Fisher King. And, and so why am I telling it here? Because I'm saying, in part, it's describing one dimension, one expression of the sacred masculine and the journey of, of, of or the particular flavors of the masculine journey. And we need this kind of storytelling and attention now more than ever. Don't think for a minute TikTok is going to give you any information about the sacred masculine or the sacred feminine. It's just not. It's too, um, it's too paper thin. It's too interested in persona, in masks, in putting on identity masks. It's too interested in posturing. It's too interested in cliches. It's not going to teach us how to kneel. Okay, so that's the Fisher King 
taste of the Fisher King. And, and just to balance the poles here, the yin and the yang, uh, let me tell you a bit about the Handless Maiden. And, okay, so the Handless Maiden is, is a story that's more interested in the, in the archetypal feminine and into the question of what is the feminine journey like. And, and the story begins with, um, with really uh, a story about patriarchy and a, a story about how um, the father figure can be self-interested to the extent, the extent to which the feminine suffers. That's how the story opens. And the miller, the father here, is is interested in in in, in um, the technological capacity to make more grain more efficiently. That's the how of the masculine, okay? And it's going to bargain with technology here to do so. And the way the ancient world looks at te- technology is always as a blessing and a curse. It's it's always going to come with a dark side. Every advancement comes with a dark side. You know, we've forgotten that. Um, I mean, nu- nuclear weapons, nuclear energy is probably the most the grossest and most obvious example, but oftentimes the technology that's in our hands, the phones, it's like um, it's it's out ahead of our our capacity to wrestle with its own darkness, and we're sort of experiencing the darkness of it in real time. But anyway, that's that that dance of of technology and the desire for technology and efficiency and what it might cost us in the end, and that's the story of the Miller. So he makes a deal with the devil, and the devil says, "I'll teach you how to make grain." grind grain more efficiently if you'll give me what's behind your house. And the miller thinks to himself, well, what's behind my house is an apple tree, and it's a good apple tree, but I can live without the apple tree. And so he makes a deal with the devil. They go behind the house, and what's standing behind his house is not just the apple tree, but his daughter. And he realizes he's, he's been fooled. He's been tricked by the, by the trickstery... Um, satanic devil-like figure and he's horrified she's horrified it's awful it's grief-stricken it's terrible and the miller doesn't know what he do what to do but he doesn't want to give his daughter over to the devil so in an act of desperation he cuts off her hands which is you know just even saying it is is shocking and strange and gives you a clue about what tends to happen to the feminine in an overly uh, masculine culture. It cuts off the, f- the hands of the feminine, cuts off the feminine's capacity to hold and to nurture and to care for and to be an individual, cuts off her hands and, 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 and she has to leave home. I mean, how can you live with a father that, that cuts you off in this way? And so she leaves home and and wanders and lives a kind of kind of terrible life for a while and can't eat and has a hard time um, surviving. And, and eventually she uh, is seen by a prince of some sort, like a prince or a kingly-like figure and, and who notices, I think his pears have been eaten, these gorgeous and precious and holy pears in a way have been eaten. And, and so he sort of sets up camp like a deer blind, you know, and, and scopes out the situation and, until he discovers, oh, it's this woman with no hands. And, and instead of um, being filled with anger, he's filled with compassion and, and invites her in. And so you're beginning again the conversation of, well, how, what's the feminine journey like and what is the path of healing? Except it's interesting because what he does for her is make her a set of silver hands. And it's amazing. She has an amazing life. She has children and she's a kind of um, queen and, and, and honored and respected by the citizens of, the, of this mini kingdom. And, but there's still a problem. The hands are not hers. They're not her own. They're given to her by, in this case, a kind of benevolent masculine energy. They're still not hers. They're not her instinctual, natural, wild, unique self. They're well-crafted hands for society. You can ask yourself, well, what is the nature of the feminine journey like? At times the hands are cut off. At times you're given to be something that's socially acceptable, but it's not instinctually, naturally you, you could say. And so uh, the story continues and she has to wander again. And one day the child she's carrying falls into a pond and and what happens is, there are a couple different versions, I'll just give you one. She reaches into the pond and her hands instantaneously grow back. And 
and I think it's, I don't know if it's in Robert Johnson's book. It may be in, in Women Who Run With the Wolves, also on my recommended reading list if you want to deepen the conversation between masculine and feminine. Read Women Who Run With the Wolves and carve out six months of your life, not only because it's long, because it's worth that at a minimum. Anyway, um, okay, so I think it's maybe she says that the instincts, the, the deep feminine archetypal instincts, one day just grow back, <laughs> which is a way of saying you can't go about, quote, cultivating it, you know, or making it happen, but somewhere along the journey, healing just happens. And, and in a kind of instinctual moment, you reconnect with that deeper part of your own core and you reach out for that child mythically and spiritually and, and you feel more yourself and your, your own hands that have been cut off by the world. And even by, by you could even say the, the masculine in your own psyche, that voice that keeps you small and safe. Um, and, but cut off lessons and the wild feminine returns, the sacred feminine returns. And there's a recovery of the instinctual self here. Okay. Why am I telling these stories? Because the best way to talk about the sacred feminine and the sacred masculine is to use poetry, art, dance, music, storytelling, myth, Bible, you know, to speak of the Bible, I mean, that one of the most beautiful lines in Genesis is male and female, he created them in the image of God, he created them. It's a, it, it sort of is a, has a poetic quality in Hebrew, and it's saying that the divine itself is both masculine and feminine. The old story suggests that, that Originally, Adam, which wasn't Adam, Adam's name, but was just humanity was both masculine and feminine. And when Adam was was when Adam and Eve were split down the middle, that's what the medieval rabbinic commentaries hint around at it. That androgynous oneness was divided, and there you have the poles, both masculine and feminine, both of which are expressions of the divine. And and the dance between the two is a sacred hieros gamos, a sacred marriage. And the union of the opposites is 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 part of the divine. So we need the opposites, we need the poles as much as we need the coincidence of the opposites. I think that St. Bonaventure, the the paradox of the poles, the possibilities of union, separation and union and the dance between. This, is, this gives us an image of, of the divine, of reality with a capital R. And maybe it's even worth saying an egalitarian future, in my opinion, and that's what I would support, an egalitarian future, a, a, a future that, that supports the wild uniqueness of, of human beings and, and, our, and our individual capacities and also a world that is as fair as possible. Life is never fair. That's, a, that's part of consciousness. But a society that works toward a kind of honoring of the other, the way toward that egalitarian future is not the elimination of the poles or the deriding of the poles or the denial that they even exist, but rather in, in the honoring um, and building up of, of the two sides of the same coin, if you, to use that kind of image. Okay. How do I want to end? I, I want to end by asking you a couple questions. One of them I already did, but what's your natural disposition? You know? Are, are you... Do you tend to have a more masculine or, or feminine way of being? Or here's a better way of putting it. What if you brought some conscious attention to how and when and why you've found yourself living out a more masculine way of being and a more feminine way of being? What's the context? And, and here's another question that I think is important to ask. What was I told and taught about the masculine and feminine? What was modeled to me? What immature um, expressions of the masculine and feminine were modeled to me? And how much of that uh, 
needs now to be to be not only questioned and reexamined, but to grow into something greater and deeper. I mean, n- nobody's going to have a childhood where they get any of these things right. There's no such thing. We're all we all come into the world um, with glimpses and tastes of what's possible, but a lot of experience of of what's immature and small and um, and dark and the but the invitation the archetypal invitation the invitation from from the soul if you want to put it that way is how to grow to transcend and include these immature expressions to say okay that that's part of how i came into the world and what i came to believe about the world and i want to grow up through these things something like that and uh here's another question okay so let's say you're you're you know, against the patriarchy, so to speak. Okay, well, here's a challenge. What are sacred examples of the masculine? And I would say the same with the feminine. What are sacred examples of the feminine? To whom should we be looking for what's possible? I mean, tearing down is the easiest thing in the world. This is partly what I did, you know, because of my own hangups and small-mindedness around Christianity for a lot of my life. And that, that, I think, again, is, is at least in, in part a natural part of adolescence. What can I deride and mar- mock and pull apart and tear down? But that is so easy. It's so easy. It's ridiculous. The more challenging question is what here needs to be preserved and honored and respected and kneeled before and what what does it have to teach me? Like, what then? Okay, if I pick on things about the church, well, what things in it are transcendent and beautiful and point toward goodness and beauty and love of self and neighbor and other? Where are those examples? So I would say the same around the sacred feminine and sacred masculine. Like, okay, who? Sh- where should we be looking? Who? Who's telling the right kind of story for the next generation about our deep masculine potentials and our deep feminine potentials? And if I can be even more sort of simple and almost cliche about it, like who can we look toward for examples of what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman or what it means to be a healthy man or a healthy woman or a healthier, that's probably the better way to say it, man or woman or, um, and what stories ought to be elevated and put forth and, and how are you going to use your tongue, you know? What tales are you going to be telling? How do you treat your own gender or the opposite gender? or the transgender community? How do you treat people as sacred mysteries, as containing the, hieros, the potential for the hieros gamos, the divine union, the, the culmination of, and oneness of reality itself? Is that how you treat human beings or not? And, and, and if the answer is, well, most of the time I don't, okay, can, can we repent? Can we turn around? Can we view the mystery of our own humanness with a kind of respect and preciousness and, and honor. And I think, at least in part, we need a more rich and beautiful conversation around the masculine and feminine to do so. So that's probably as much as I want to say today. I mean, and I probably already said too much, as I tend to do on these podcasts, but I do want to thank you for listening, if you made it this far. And, and um, I hope you heard a hint, a guess, a clue, something that you agreed with or didn't agree with. I think that's just as important. Um, you know, things you liked or didn't like. Um, what, what did you resist? And what tapped you on the so- shoulders, a kind of confirmation here. And so, in, a, in other words, what hints and guesses are you going to carry up from this podcast? And I, and I hope there's something in here, at least, that might encourage you on your own, um, on your own story, on your own journey ar- around the difficulties and I, and I, of just being human. And let me say something about masculine and feminine. It, this is difficult terrain because one of the inevitable things that happens once we start saying, what's my disposition is that we're brought back to our childhood, which where a lot of 
of our of our ideas were formed about around masculine and feminine and a lot of our own natural dispositions were shamed or or had to go into the basement in in some way and so all i'm saying is this is not easy you know and and anyone who's ever been any kind of long-term intimate relationship knows that okay this stuff is going to come out and so anyway i just heard i hope you hear something in here that um, you can carry forward in your own way. Thanks for tuning in. Peace.